Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and sustain us. And even as we start, we do lift up Jeannie to you. Uh, pray for her uh, care and protection as she uh, as they try to get her back to Nashville this week. And well, we pray for her healing and restoration and comfort. Uh, pray for all the family, too, that's involved in that just to you know make it through all the stuff that has to happen, all the decisions that need to be made. Pray that they can find the right place. Uh, to get her to in Nashville uh, for her continued care. And we just commit that whole situation to you uh, that you'll provide uh, more than we can ask or think. And Father, as we continue to work our way through Acts today, I pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight into what you've revealed here for us and recorded and preserved over all these years so that we can have a better understanding of your work um, that started this whole new era uh, in the early days of the church. And so we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, last week we left off uh, right in Acts 1.15. That's in page 16 on your notes. And again, I'm sorry if you don't have the notes after that. We'll, we'll, we'll bring those back next week and make sure we had those. I thought I had them in my uh, book bag, but I didn't. So... Um, yeah, we'll have those. But in your notes, you're on page 16. And before I jump into that, I want to uh, I want to look in Luke 24 and I want to read Jesus last words in Luke 24, because um, very pointedly what the last things that Jesus says in Luke set the stage for what happens in these early chapters of Acts. And um, today, as we're, as we're starting to get into this, after doing some of the introduction last week and the week before, uh, I wanted to read this out of Luke. And if you, if you want to look, if you have your Bibles and want to look uh, with me uh, at the passage I'm going to read, it's Luke 24, and I'm going to start in verse 44, Luke 24, 44. This is the episode we're reading is uh, the Sunday night on the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And in Luke's account, he has already appeared to the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, before that, he had appeared to Peter and some of the women who had gone to the tomb early in the morning. Um, in fact, the order of occurrences are he appeared to some women that had gone to the tomb. Then he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he appears to the rest of the disciples back in Jerusalem. And so this is uh, all an account of him appearing to them after his resurrection that Sunday morning, and he's uh, given them some instruction on what's about to happen next. And so um, like verse 36 through 43, he appears. He says, peace to you. They're, they're troubled and they think they're seeing a spirit, a ghost. And he says, listen, the ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Uh, and then he eats something with them. Uh, so he proves that it's him and he's not a ghost, right? He's not a spirit. Then verse 44, this is what I wanted to look at. Verse 44, Luke 24, 44 says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, look at that list. Really important. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is basically the Old Testament. Right? This is the way the, the Jews thought of, you know, the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament. Uh, most often you'll see it just referred to as the law and the prophets. And that, that was the, you know, the collection of the 39 books that we have in our modern arrangement of our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Here, though, Jesus divides it into, um, into the law of Moses and the prophets. And he also mentions the Psalms. You see that specifically. And, and, and it's really interesting because in the book of Acts, when we get into these early sermons, particularly from Peter, uh, Peter is going to touch on all three of those things. He's going to prove, he's going to make an argument. Let me say it that way. He's going to make an argument that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were all fulfillments of things written about him in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And they pay particular attention to the Psalms. We're, we're going to look at that in quite a bit of detail. Uh, really, really important. Uh, I had a, I had a uh, prof who... Um, he was kind of strange. He was a great Hebrew teacher, just a fantastic Hebrew teacher, just incredible teacher. But he, he uh, in class, he was talking about 
we were doing studies in the Psalms, and, and he didn't believe that the Psalms were messianic and prophetic within themselves, right? He, he believed that that was something that the early church read back into it, but, but they weren't specifically prophetic. And uh, one of the guys in class said, well, Prof, what about what Jesus says in Luke 24, that he would fulfill the things written about him in the Psalms? And the prophet said, oh, well, I guess I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> right. Uh, I always, you know, I always think about what Tom Murray said about people who write commentaries, right? You got to remember that the people that write commentaries are just commentators, right? <laughs> Commentator. They don't know everything, right? Um, and I'll tell you what, I, I've read some of the most stupid things I've ever read in my entire life in commentaries on the Bible, just things that, that defy just basic common sense, you know? It's, it's unbelievable. But here... Jesus makes a point that there are things written about him in the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms that he has fulfilled and that they must have been fulfilled. And then this, this offhand statement, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Right? Just, almost, just almost in passing, right? Now, in saying that, what does that mean? That means before Jesus did that, they didn't understand the scriptures. You understand what I'm saying? So something had to happen to them to open their mind to understand what's going on. And one of the things I love is when we get into these first sermons from Peter and we listen to these sermons. Uh, I, in fact, I was reading one commentator today who had a quote from a guy who was not a believer, uh, just a complete secular guy who, who teaches rhetoric and teaches, you know, giving speeches and that kind of thing. And this, this, this man will use Peter's speech in secular classes uh, out of Acts 2, he says, because that one sermon is a rhetorical masterpiece. One of the greatest pieces of rhetoric that's ever been spoken in human language. Right. This is a secular guy. Right. And you hear that and you think, well, where did that Peter come from? Right. He's nothing like the Peter we see in the Gospels. Well, that's because of this in part. Jesus has opened his mind to understand the scriptures. And Lord have mercy when the Holy Spirit comes on Peter. Look out. Right. Uh, verse 46. He said to them, and thus it is written. So here he's going to give them a little taste. It's written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We are so used to hearing that. Right. We know that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing towards that. But, but here's the thing. Nobody in the first century was looking for that. When, when you look at, yeah, yeah, why should they? You know, it's not, it's not clear in there. You have to look at the big picture of things. And so this idea that the Messiah would come and that he would suffer and die and then be raised from the dead, that was an entirely new putting together of what was revealed in the Old Testament. No one was looking for that. And this and in fact, the idea that the Messiah would come and die, and particularly that he would be crucified on the tree, that was something that, that no Jewish mind in the first century would have been able to fully comprehend. And this is one of the arguments that the apostles are going to make, and they're going to show, well, the scriptures actually told us this. We just didn't realize that's what it was pointing towards, right? So, so there, that's one of the things we're going to see uh, Peter making an argument for, Paul making an argument for, proving it from the Scriptures. Then verse 47, uh, so Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. And then verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be pro proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is Acts 1 and 2. Everything that happens in Acts 1 and 2 in some way is related to that. Uh, Peter is going to preach his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And at the end of that sermon, the crowd's going to say, well, brothers, what should we do? And Peter is going to say, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus so that your sins may be forgiven. The exact thing Jesus says here in verse 47. Right? 
there, Jesus is making, you know, a general statement about it of what's going to happen. In Acts 2, Peter preaches it. It says, this is what y'all need to do, right? Uh, and then we're going to see this concept of witness all through the early part of Acts. We are witnesses of these things. Uh, and then, of course, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be a big deal. We're, we're going to talk about that in some, at some length today. Uh, so I, I just wanted to bring that up to show you how at the end of Luke, in the gospel, he is preparing for what we're going to get into in Acts chapter 1. And last week, we uh, looked at the introduction and Jesus telling the disciples in Acts 1, 6 through 11. Uh, this is in your notes on page 14. Acts 1, 6 through 11, he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit uh, has come upon them. Right, And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And then as he said this, he was taken up uh, from them. Uh, then the last things that we looked at uh, after the uh, ascension is you have the naming of the 11 apostles at the bottom of page 15. And of course, there are 11 because Judas at this point has hanged himself. He's already killed himself. And that takes us right into the next, next episode of what we're going to pick up on today. Uh, in your notes, page 16, uh, if you want to read it in your Bibles, Acts 1, 15 is where we pick up. This is the episode where they have to figure out what to do with um, the place that's been vacated by Judas among the 12 apostles. So let's just read through that. Let's, let's read through this whole section verses 15 through 26, and then we will, um, then we'll come back and make some comment on it. It says uh, this, now during these days, Peter stood up among the believers and the number of people who were together were, were about 120. Um, now there's been huge debate over whether or not, um, you know, that's the full number of believers that were present at the time, or that's just the group that's around the disciples. I mean, it's pretty clear, though, um, that at this point, after the crucifixion of Jesus, everybody's been scattered, you know? I mean, you don't have these great masses that are still following Jesus. And I'll say something about that a little bit later when we get to Peter's sermon. But it's interesting that he mentions the 120 here. Um, Peter, you know, we talked a little bit about Peter at the end of last class, how Jesus had already set him apart to be the leader of these disciples. And, at, and you know, he told Peter specifically that you're going to deny me, but after you've returned, you're to, you're to take care of your brothers, right? You're to, you're to uh, take care of my people. You're to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, watch over my sheep. And so here Peter's starting to take his role uh, as the spokesperson and, you know, the person who's bringing uh, the early believers together. So verse 16, he says, Brothers, uh, the scriptures had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David spoke in advance about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and was allotted a share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field. Now, verse 18, um, 18 and 19 are parenthetical statements that Luke interjects to explain what's going on here. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages and he fell head first and burst open in the middle and all his insides spilled out. Well, that's okay. I don't know that I needed to know all that, but I'm going with you. Uh, this became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. Uh, and then Peter continues on. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Verse 21, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it's necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, the whole point, right, of the, the person they're going to pick for this is right there at the end of verse 22. This person is going to become a witness of the resurrection. So hold on to that for just a minute. Verse 22, so they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, uh, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. So they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. 
to take the place in this apostolic service that Judas left to go to his own place. And so they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was numbered uh, with the 11 apostles. One of the questions I get a ton is, you know, we talked last week about Jesus said, when he was talking about the 12, he said, you're going to be 12 judges sitting on 12 thrones, judging over uh, the nation of Israel in the kingdom to come. And so there's, there was always a question of, is, is Matthias the 12th, or is, would Paul be the 12th who comes later? And the answer is clearly Matthias, right? That's what this passage proves. He is one that is numbered among the 12. And the reason I say that is, if you notice the qualifications that Peter sets forth in 21 and 22, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time Jesus, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from beginning with the baptism of John, right, until the day he was taken up from us. So whoever this 12th person is going to be, it has to be somebody that was with Jesus from the baptism of John all the way to his ascension, right? Paul would not fit that qualification because he wasn't there at the beginning. He, he was not one who saw Jesus' whole ministry. I think another really important thing going on here is this is somebody, as they give witness to the resurrection, that they have to have been with Jesus the whole time, right, to hear all of his teaching. So that when they become witnesses of the, of the resurrection, they can say, the guy that we saw from the very beginning is the same guy who came back from the dead, right? So, so they, they have to be witnesses in, in the larger sense. And we'll, we'll say more about that in just a second. Um, if you look back up, right, uh, Peter begins with this idea that brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And then he, he quotes from Psalm 69, 25. And then also uh, Psalm 109.8. So here again, Peter's looking at the Psalms, exactly like Jesus was talking about, and he sees this, this pattern of fulfillment. Now, <clears throat> let me just say that there is a, <clears throat> a, a subset of study in the New Testament that deals with how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, use of the Old Testament in the New and in fact, I had a whole course on it when I was at Dallas. A really fascinating study. I mean, it, man, it opens up everybody's can of worms. There's just all kind of issues going on. And one of the things that, that happens is, uh, particularly in this, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with it. I'm just going to give you my conclusions. You can go read this and, you know, you can, you can see the background of it. But if you go look in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, the psalm that um, Peter's drawn from here, it, 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 it's not prophetic at first glance. It, it, it doesn't look like something that needs to be fulfilled, right? And in fact, in the first instance, it's just David praying a prayer that his enemies would be killed, <laughs> right? Their station would be vacated and that they would go to the place of, uh, you know, they, that the Lord would put them in the place of the grave and whatnot. So it's, it's not obvious that those things are prophetic in and of themselves, right? And there is some sense in which they're only prophetic in hindsight. Now, another great example of this, and it's not in Luke-Acts, it's actually in Matthew, where Matthew is talking about uh, the time when Joseph takes Mary and Jesus and they flee to Egypt. You remember this? Because they realize, you know, Herod's getting crazy. We're going to get out of there for a while. And so they flee to Egypt. And when they come back from Egypt, Matthew says this was to fulfill uh, the words of the prophet said, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Right? Well, now, if you go look at that reference, there's nothing prophetic about that Old Testament text. In fact, that text is a historical recounting of God delivering Israel out of Egypt. And in the actual text that Matthew is referring to, probably, it says, out of Egypt, I've called Israel. Right? Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, I think and and. Let me just say this. I ought to preface this with this verse. There's so many modern thinkers, theologians, and you know, people who do work in the Scriptures, sometimes they get it in their head that the writers in the New Testament in the first century ought to use the same techniques and devices that they're using 
in the way they interpret scripture and in the way they construct their sermons and in the way they do things. And this, of course, is coming from a post-enlightenment mindset that's not anywhere close to the way the people in the first century thought, right? And all throughout my life, I've thought, wait a minute, maybe that's getting it completely reversed. Maybe we ought to shape our mind based on the way they thought, not try to impose our preconceptions and notions on what they're doing and saying, well, because when you get into that study, I mean, commentators will say, clearly Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. There's nothing prophetic about this whatsoever. He's just making stuff up. But this, but one of the things that happens, and I'm, I'm convinced of this, is that these early thinkers, Jesus himself does this, and, and he may be the source of some of it. They look at even these historical writings that may not be specifically prophetic in and of themselves at first glance, and they see the pattern and the work of God at play, right? And, and, and as they see that pattern and they see a similar pattern show up later, right, then, then they see that as a fulfillment in the sense of filling something out, right? In other words, God delivered um, Israel out of Egypt in one way, but he also brought his beloved son Jesus out of Egypt in a more profound way. So you, they see that pattern and they think, oh, there must be some link there, right? And if you remember, those of you that did the study in the wisdom literature, there's a great passage in uh, Ecclesiastes 3 where, you know, it talks about, you know, the, the history is almost inscrutable. But what God has done in the past, he'll do it again so that people will fear him. Right. So God works in these cyclical patterns. And one of the one of the things that we have, particularly with the Psalms, is that G Jesus himself, Peter and Paul, they see David as being the prototypical Messiah, right? He is the first one that becomes a prototype of who Jesus is going to be, right? And so David is given promises that David, through your line, one of your sons is going to come and reign on your throne and so forth. And so the Psalms that David writes, all of a sudden we start to see that, wait a minute, David may have insight into some things that we may not have seen the first go around. And this is what Jesus does. You know, uh, one of the Psalms that Peter is going to quote in his sermon is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you remember, Jesus uses that very quotation to confound the Pharisees and scribes who are trying to trip him up at the end of his ministry. And they're trying to give him a question about, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, uh, a woman had seven husbands. Who's going to be the husband in the resurrection, you know, from the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection? And then finally, Jesus says, well, you know, those are some good questions. Let me ask you a question. In Psalm 110, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Lord who's over David, right, sit at my right hand. And he says, so let me ask you this. This is clearly David's son. How is it that David can call his son Lord? And they're all like, well, we hadn't thought about that before, right? So Jesus all of a sudden illuminates this in a way that they had not particularly thought about. And of course, the answer is, is that the son that's coming, that is a descendant of David, is the literal son of God who is over David, right? And that's the point Jesus is making. So Jesus takes the words of David and he sees a, a larger fulfillment in himself, right? Um, Another thing that happens in the Psalms is several of the Psalms where David is praying against his enemies and his adversaries, right? Those who have stood against him, they see that as a type for Jesus. Jesus had enemies and adversaries, right? In fact, one of the most famous Psalms that everybody believes is a messianic Psalm is the Psalm that uh, clearly in some form, it sounds like it's talking about crucifixion, right? Uh, uh, they have pierced my hands right? My bones are out of joint. I'm being poured out like wax. I'm surrounded by the great bulls. They're trying to destroy my life. Now, Lord, I pray you come and destroy them, right? So there, that, that was initially David talking metaphorically, symbolically, you know, poetically about his enemies that were standing against him. But when we apply it to Jesus, it becomes a more literalistic, this is what's actually happening type thing. You understand what I'm saying? So, 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 and, 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 and the other thing is, primarily when they do this, they will draw it out of the poetic text 
of the Old Testament, which are more open-ended, right? Usually poetry and narrative literature, it is open to a larger sense of fulfillment and significance than if we're just, you know, given facts and information in bullet point form. So, so uh, and again, I just wanted to introduce you to that because if you're ever reading a, a commentary on Acts, at some point, you're going to get into this thing where people are saying the apostles just, they don't know how to study the Bible. They don't have good principles. And I think, well, maybe they knew better than we do, you know, maybe, maybe. And, and secondly, as Peter is saying these things, he's doing it under the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guiding his mind. And that's going to be very clear in a little bit. The Holy Spirit is guiding them in the understanding of this. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if it's you, a commentator that, that, you know, you're sitting over there in your house studying books all day long. Am I going to listen to you or somebody who's working under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think I'm going to go at the Holy Spirit every time. Right. So so I just wanted to bring that up because there's a huge controversy. And to me, it's not as big of a controversy as some of the commentators make it out. And so here uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 69:25 and 109:8 a little bit later. And he sees those as being filled out in this episode with Judas betraying Jesus, just as in those Psalms, uh, David has been betrayed by somebody close to him. Right. And so you, you see the parallel. You, you see the uh, the analogy that's taken place. Uh, and then uh, Peter goes on to say that uh, verse 17, for he was one of our number and was allotted a share in this ministry. Uh, so he was given a share in the ministry by Jesus. And then, of course, you, you get the detail of um, uh, uh, what happened to Judas. Notice it doesn't mention anything about hanging, but that he fell head first and burst open in the middle and all of his insides spilled out. So, man, whatever happened there, that was that was a grisly affair. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure, I, you know, that's all you need to know. I mean, you can read that and you can see what's happened. It's I mean, and, and you can see it's so bad that that. <laughs> Uh, it's I mean, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and and the point that he's making here is he's attaching that to a field that probably some of the readers would know. That's called Hakeldama, the field of blood, right? So that that was still a thing that these people in the area would would have known about. Um, and then, of course, you have Psalm 109 there in verse 20. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place become desolate. Let no one live in it and let someone else uh, take, take his position. Um, and so here they, they, uh, they then figure out what they're going to do to uh, replace Judas. And uh, you can see, again, the qualifications that the men they're going to look for, they have to be somebody who is with with them in the ministry of Jesus from beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up, the day of his ascension. So all through the ministry of Jesus, this is somebody that's going to be a witness of the resurrection. Um, and so they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbath, uh, Barsabbas. And he also has the name Justice. That's his Latin name. Uh, a lot of Jewish people in the first century would have their uh, Jewish names in Aramaic, but then also a Latin or Roman name, you know, as they mix in uh, Roman culture. Uh, a really interesting name change that comes in the book of Acts is there's a guy named Saul that y'all might have heard of, and he becomes Paul, the apostle. And it's really interesting because the Lord doesn't give him the name Paul. That's something that Paul takes on for himself. And we'll talk about that when we get there. It's a real good surprise in that. Uh, really good surprise. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You got to wait till whenever, right before Christmas, maybe before we get to that. <laughs> maybe even next year. I don't know. Maybe the year after that. We'll see. Uh, so here they, they, they put forth Joseph and Matthias. And um, notice the, the point then is both of these men are equally qualified. Right? They both fit the qualifications, apparently. They've both been with Jesus from the baptism uh, until uh, the uh, ascension, which is really interesting that there's only two names put forward, right? Not three, not four. There's only two, which, again, makes me think this group is very small. And the people that were with Jesus in his ministry all the way through, very, very small group. And it may be that the 120 is all there is, possibly. 
Uh, but they're both equally qualified. And so what do they do? They cast lots. They say, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Uh, show us which of these two you have chosen um, to take the place and the service that Judas left to go to his own place. They cast lots for him and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was numbered among the 11 apostles. Um, Y'all know there's a, there's a proverb that says uh, the lot is cast in the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. Right? And what that's telling you is there's no such thing as chance. No such thing as chance. Even the most insignificant thing that happens, the Lord is behind it in some way or another. Right? So here, these men who are equally qualified, Peter and like, I don't, what should we do? I don't know. Two good options. Cast the lot. Let's see where it goes. Let the Lord choose. Right? By the way, it's, that, that's a good way to solve issues. Where are we going to eat tonight? You see, this is the endless, endless struggle we have going on. Where are we going to eat tonight? I don't know. One says this, one says that. You can't please everybody. Flip the coin, wherever the coin lands. That's, in fact, I've wanted to make an app forever that's like the decision app. Like it's got like five or six restaurants in it. Where are we going to eat tonight? I don't know. Click the button. There it is. Let's go. Right. <laughs> Save so much trouble. Yeah. Man, I tell you what, it, it is easier to, well, I'm not going to get into all that. Y'all know how it works. Uh, but here, the, and again, the main thing I want to emphasize is these two men are equally qualified. It's not like they're just, you know, choosing this willy nilly. Uh, but these men are equally qualified. And so they let the Lord choose by by casting the lots for him. Uh, a really, really interesting uh, connection here. I only mention this because I've been teaching through Second Peter in a, um, in a Sunday school class here at First Event, actually. But if you notice. Uh, verse 17, there's, a, word, there's a, a play on words. For he was one of our number that was allotted a share. You see that? So then they cast lots to find out who's going to be his replacement. Uh, that, that word is uh, the same root that is behind what Peter, right? Peter, second Peter, uh, says in the first verses of his second letter. He says, from Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus, to those who have been allotted a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Our faith has been allotted to us. Right? It's been granted to us. We're, and we'll see, some of that, we'll see some of that discussion come up in the book of Acts. Uh, and but but I just wanted to mention that that to me, that's always interesting that here Peter is uh, dealing with this issue of casting lots for Matthias for Judas, who was allotted a share. And that's one of the key ideas he's going to use in his second letter. I mean, that can't be by accident. Uh, really, really interesting. Uh, so there that's that's the replacement of, of um, Judas. And so we, now we have the, the 12 apostles. Uh, in place, and that leads us right into chapter two, which is the day of uh, Pentecost. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that here in just a second. Anybody, any questions or comments on any of that uh, so far? Yeah, Mary. What was the actual casting of lots? <laughs> yeah, now that's, a, that's, that's the great question. We're not told specifically. Uh, the process that they used, but more than likely, uh, it was something similar to. Um, what the priest would do in the Old Testament. Yeah, uh, the Urim and the Thummim, you know, where they had the two stones, you know, of different colors, and they would put those in a bag and pull one out, and then whichever way it went. And, you know, and almost always you want to try to, um, you know, limit choices down to that either-or situation. You know I mean? It saves you a lot of trouble. You know? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't tell you what, when it comes to that choice, you're in real trouble, you know? I mean, that one's hard. Now, if it was you know, Mexican and Indian or something like that, then, it's a little, then it becomes a little bit easier. But, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll take any one. In fact, the best thing to do is go get a little Mexican and hit Chinese on the way home, you know. Don't, you know, get too crazy. Yeah, yeah and the, 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 the Roman soldiers earlier had cast the lots to divide them up, you know, see who's going to get what. And, of course, that was, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there was bones. There was, uh, and the bones were roughly analogous the way we do, do dice. You know, they would be chopped up. Sticks, yeah. Put, I mean, putting some strips of paper or parchment in the back, you know, that's just all different kind of ways you can do it, yeah. Yeah, now that we don't carry coins around, you know, we're in, we're in real trouble. What do you do? I mean, you got to make up something, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, 
All right, y'all, anybody else? Any questions or comments on any of that? All right, well, let's, uh, let's get into Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And y'all, I'm sorry, those of you that if, if you're missing that section of notes, sorry, I'll, we'll have those for you next week. Today, really, what I want to do is I, I want to read through this section with you. And we're actually probably going to take the rest of our time talking about this sideline issue about the uh, pouring out of the Spirit. So um, if you want to read this with me in your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 2 and read the fir- um, we're going to read the first four verses and then uh, maybe read the next part of it. Uh, and I knew that we were going to take a little bit longer in these earlier chapters of Acts because so many foundational things happen here that are so important. Uh, and I don't want to rush through these chapters. Later, when we get into like the missionary journeys of Paul and so forth, those, those chapters are just literally, we're, we're probably going to read two chapters in class and there's not a whole lot to say about it other than what's there, you know. Uh, it's, just, it's just the recording of the events. But here in these early chapters, so many things happen that are of great significance that I want to take the time to really uh, dig into these. And, and one of them is Peter's first sermon that, that I really want to wait to get into uh, next week to uh, really plumb that thing the way we need to, because it's, it's just glorious, fantastic. So Acts 2.1, it sets us up. It says, uh, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying and tongues, uh, something like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Uh, let me go ahead and read this whole thing because uh, I want you to see what happens with this. It's important. So let's keep on in verse 5, Acts 2, 5. It says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Notice how this is specifically about Jews, specifically about people from Israel. Now when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking with us Galileans? Right, all these guys have a Mississippi accent. So <laughs> immediately, like, whoa, man, where are these? Yeah, where are these guys coming from? How do they know, right? That boy graduated from Corinth High School. He can't, he can't know much, right? Uh, 2.8, how is it that each of us can hear it in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, uh, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent, of act, the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. They're drunk, right? In other words, talking nonsense. Uh, so here, the, the Spirit is poured out. Uh, it, he fills all of these early disciples, and they begin to speak in uh, different languages so that the Jews who are in Jerusalem at the time, they hear the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own uh, languages. And let me just say, um, verses 9 and uh, 9 through 11, where all the different uh, either countries or regions are named, most of those are places where Paul and Peter are going to wind up doing missionary work later. But there, it's to the Gentiles. Right? Here, these are Jews who are from the what they call the diaspora, the scattering of the Jewish people. If you remember, if you remember after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews were scattered, right, in Babylon uh, and in the other surrounding uh, uh, areas there. Many of them came out of old Babylon and into Asia Minor, which is where a lot of these uh, places are are mentioned in. Uh, If you remember at that time, even when the Lord restored Israel, right, and brought them back and they began to rebuild the temple, many of the Jews stayed in dispersion. They didn't come back to Israel. They're like, well, why do we want to go back there? Life's good over here. We got running water. We got, you know, we got good food. I don't know why I'd want to go back there. You know, so they they stayed dispersed. 
And so uh, many of those Jews stayed in those areas. Uh, they built synagogues. You know, they, they established a Jewish culture there. Uh, that was very true in Rome. Uh, the Jews had a fairly prominent presence in Rome up until about A.D. 49. And we'll talk about that when we get into Acts. At, uh, in A.D. 49, Emperor Claudius uh, kicks all the Jews out of Rome. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But, but all these are Jews that have, have uh, come from, you know, these other regions. They're probably there for the great uh, festival. Uh, some, are, some may be living in Jerusalem. The, the translation has here living in Jerusalem, but you could easily say that they're, they're staying in Jerusalem, that they had, they had come down for this great feast. And so um, as they hear these works, they're all hearing it in their own language. And we'll talk about that as we go. I think I probably, you know, and, and of course, this is the great representation. You know, I, this is a little foretaste of, you know, in uh, Revelation, is it Revelation 5? Yeah, uh, six. I uh, can't remember which one. Right there in five or six, John has that vision of, you know, the great multitude uh, on Mount Zion. And they're from every people, tribe, language and nation. And they're all praising God, you know. So this is kind of the beginning of that. This is the... the uh, the beginning of that salvation going out. Now here it's here it's Jews who are represented in these nations. And, I, and I'm making a big point about this because you don't get the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations until chapters 10 and 11, where Peter goes and opens the gospel uh, to the Gentiles in Cornelius's house. If you if you know the book of Acts and you can think forward to that, this the first work in the book of Acts is all about proclaiming the good news to Israel to the Jews in Israel. And, and Paul says it this way a little bit later, right? In, in Romans, the gospel is for the Jew first, but it's also for the Greeks or for the Gentiles, right? So, so Luke wants to make, he's, and this is, um, you know, this is not controversial, but people have a hard time with this on some levels. Uh, Luke is making a big deal that Peter and the other disciples and the apostles, they bent over backwards doing everything possible to try to convince Israel that Jesus is your Messiah and you crucified him, but there's still hope for you if you turn, right? And yet with everything they do at the end, Israel is still in rejection of their Messiah, by, by and large, as a whole. There's a remnant that believes, but Israel as a nation does not repent and turn back to the Lord. And I think part of that, I think part of the reason for that is as Luke writes in the mid-60s, I, I think, now this is all speculation on my part, so you just have to, this is not, I can't prove this directly, but I think probably Luke and Peter and Paul and those who are alive there in the mid-60s, uh, Rome has already started their invasion of Israel. Things have already gotten crossways between the Israelis and Rome. And we know that by AD 70, the Romans are going to have completely destroyed Jerusalem, torn the temple down and everything else. I think Peter and Paul and Luke probably see that as the fulfillment of what Jesus had already foretold, that that very thing was going to happen. And so in part, he's explaining what's, what's about to happen to Israel, right? That in their rejection of Messiah, they brought utter ruin on themselves. And that's exactly where they're headed, you know? Um, and so, yeah, really, re really, really powerful there uh, in that. And we'll make a bigger deal about that as we get on into Acts. They hear a question, comment or something. Yeah, Russ. Can you elaborate a little bit more why all of those people would have been in Jerusalem at this particular time? Yeah, I will. After yeah. how many centuries? Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I'll answer that right. That, that was the next thing I wanted to get into. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, so if you look, uh, if, if you see, man, you right on it. Uh, if you look in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost is a part of the uh, larger celebration of Passover, right? So the, the celebration of Passover, which has a couple of uh, feasts attached to it, and, and a longer celebration, it begins with Passover, right? Which is the celebration of uh, and the remembrance of the Lord redeeming Israel out of Egypt when he sent the angel of death and the final plague to destroy the firstborn sons in Egypt. But the angel of death passed over the sons of Israel because of the blood that they had applied on the door and so forth. So Passover is a celebration of that. And of course, in, in our time frame in Luke, that would have been the Friday, the, the Passover, the celebration 
Uh, the feast then would have been celebrated, right, Thursday night is the beginning of it, because that's when, you know, Jews account the day from sundown to sundown, not morning to morning. So Passover begins Thursday night at sundown. That's when Jesus celebrated Passover with the disciples and turned it into the Lord's Supper, right, reinterpreted it in terms of his body and his blood. Then Passover comes during the next day. That's when Jesus is crucified, right? Uh, he's crucified. He's put in the, the tomb uh, before sundown at the end of Passover because Friday night would begin the Sabbath, right? And the Sabbath, that, that Saturday, is uh, the beginning of the um, uh, Feast of... Um, my mind just went blank on me. What? Uh, yeah, uh, beginning Feast of Weeks, the beginning that's going to result in where we are at Pentecost. And then, uh, and, and that is, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, not weeks, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread that initiates the Feast of Weeks, right? And then, um, and then on uh, the Sunday, that's the feast, the one-day feast, the Feast of first fruits, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So Jesus calls him the first fruits of those that sleep, right, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's incredible how that lines up, you know. It's almost like the Lord planned that whole thing that way, right? I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, and then, and then that's it. So then from the beginning of, of when Passover begins, 50 days later, that's where they celebrate Pentecost. Penta means 50, right? Uh, so 50 days later, they would celebrate the Feast of First Fruits, which is the, I'm sorry, the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the harvest festivals and so forth. And so they would have been looking forward to that this whole time. So this is 50 days uh, after um, after Passover, uh, Pentecost, and that, that's the Greek name for it. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, the larger feast is called the Feast of Weeks. And um, it, it also coincides, uh, and there's some debate over how, how much they did this in the first century, but it also coincides with a celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Because if you think about it, Passover, where are they roughly 50 days later? They're at Mount Sinai. Moses is about to go up and receive the law uh, from the Lord there, right? So, so eventually the Jews put that together that this Feast of Pentecost was also a commemoration of the giving of the law. <clears throat> and it just so happens that the Spirit is going to come on that day, right? And then, and then look at what happens. Uh, something, uh, as the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in place, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and fill the whole house where they were staying. Notice, <clears throat> this is just a sound, like a violent rushing wind, right? It doesn't say there was an actual wind. There's just the sound of it. And this thing is so loud that a crowd comes together of people that are not in the house. Right? So this is, a, this is big, right? Like, what the heck is that? It sounds like a tornado coming through. Well, what in the world is that? Let's go out and see, right? So this sound comes through. Uh, and then tongues like flames of fire came and divided, appeared and rested on each one of them, right? Hmm. Now we think about Moses and the giving of the law, and you think about what happened during that, what happens? Earthquakes, violent wind, lightning, flashing, fire coming from heaven, right? So a lot of this imagery connects right back to Mount Sinai, but here it's completely different, right? Now, the Spirit is being poured out. And I would even go so far to say is that this is the fulfillment, in a sense, of what God wanted to do with Israel on Mount Sinai. If you remember, He told them when they came up to the mountain that if you will be very careful to listen to my voice, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. And, and the implication there is all of y'all are going to be priests. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, but they fail miserably at Sinai, right? You remember the Lord tells them to stay away from the mountain, but then when you hear the ram's horn, and the Hebrew is very clear, then you're to come up on the mountain, and there I'll meet with you, and I'll reaffirm my covenant with you. <clears throat> but the horn starts to blow, and they stand back and they fear, right? And the Lord blows the horn louder. Well, maybe they didn't hear. Let me, Gabriel, blow it a little louder, right? So it gets louder. And they still stand back and they tremble. And then the Lord says, Moses, you tell them stay where they are. If they come up on the mountain now, I'll kill every one of them, right? Because they failed to respond to the Lord in faith. And then instead of them becoming a kingdom of priests, 
The Lord gives them laws and stipulations and statutes that makes them a kingdom with priests. Now the priesthood becomes a select few. And nobody has access to the presence of God other than the high priest. And he only has it one time out of the year. Right. So so in their failure, they don't become what God intends for them to do. But here on Pentecost, now all of a sudden the spirit is poured out. And who is he poured out on? He's going to be on everybody. And so the church literally becomes that kingdom of priests. You and I are all priests for Jesus, right? It's one of the things we're called, right? We've been given a priesthood through him. And so this is in a sense a fulfillment of what was intended for Israel. And notice, it's offered to Israel first, right? Y'all failed at Sinai. Now's your time. This is, this is for you. And, and Peter's going to say, at the end of his first great sermon, talking to the Jews, this is not just for you. This is for all who are near and far away and your children to come. This is your promise. This is your time. And what are they going to do? Once again, they're going to reject, right? Nope. Don't want anything to do with it, right? Ah, incredible. Yeah. Address what he asked. Were these probably visitors? Yeah. Uh, the thing I was getting to is Passover was one of the great festival, uh, one of the great pilgrim festivals where people would often come from great distances. At, yeah, pilgrimage at least once in their life. So some of these may have been people that had never made the pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. And that's why I th in, in this translation, uh, verse uh, five there, Jews living in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I think the idea is that they were in Jerusalem, right? They were staying in Jerusalem. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So they, and, and, and it's clear that these are people from all over, right? So, so clearly they had come down and gathered together in, you know, for the great festival, for, for, for Passover, which is one of the big ones uh, that they would come down for. And again, you know, it just, uh, these people just happen to be there when these incredible things are being fulfilled, you know, uh, really, really powerful. Yeah. The, 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 the yeah. I think it's everybody. I, I, I think it's all the disciples here. Because notice, um, notice it says um, when it happened, uh, they all came together and they each heard them speaking in their own language. And so it seems like that all, all the disciples, the 120, were, were, were given the gift uh, and able to speak in these languages. Also, one of the really fascinating things in Acts is, is that the apostles, even though they're charged with a different responsibility, like they're not given anything special. Right? Same Holy Spirit is given to the apostles as with just the disciples, you know. Uh, and, you know, what Peter says in that second letter that I just read, y'all all have been allotted a faith just as precious as ours. In other words, yeah, I walk with Jesus. Nothing special about me. Right. We've all received the same gifts. We've all been given. The same. So I, I think this is probably the, the 120 here. And there's something else that makes me think that. And I can't get it to the forefront of my thought right now. So something that happens later. Maybe we'll read it and it'll, it'll spark back. But that's a great question. Yeah. Very good question. Is there a pattern when Jesus talks in John to Nicodemus and he uses the wind as an illustration yeah. of the Holy Spirit? But yeah. You have to be born as water and spirit. Another great question it leads us right into where we want to go. Uh, the wind, both wind and fire, are often used as symbols of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Jesus, like Jan was saying, Jesus uses it with Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes, so it is with the Holy Spirit, right? Spirit is often figured uh, as a wind. And the word spirit in uh, Greek, it, really interesting, in both Greek and Hebrew, it's the same word for wind, our breath, right? Now, we have different words in English. But in Hebrew, the word for wind, spirit, breath, it's all the same word, just as it is in Greek. So when you blow on your hand, that's what the Holy Spirit's like, right? Really powerful when you think about it. Um, and I mean, and think about that. It's power. You can feel it, right? But it has no form, and you definitely can't tame it, <laughs> right? You can't draw it in. So really uh, powerful image. Also, uh, the fire, great, great image of the Lord 
in his holiness, right? And the, the spirit is often figured in terms of fire. Fire, too, is something that has power and presence. But how do you shape it? How do you, you know, I haven't seen anybody sculpt anything out of fire yet. Right? You, you, can't, you can't contain it. You can't quite get your mind and hands fully around it. Uh, also, and, and, I'll, and I'll end with this, as he descends in this way, and notice it's a very visible thing. They see this. Um, and in fact, let, let me preface what I'm about to say with this. I know we're right at time. What we're seeing here is parallel to what happened with Jesus at his baptism, right? Jesus goes in. He hears the message of John. He's baptized by John. As he's being baptized, what happens? The Holy Spirit descends in a physical, visible way. People see it. And then what happens? Jesus goes and he begins his ministry. He begins to preach. He begins to teach. And he begins to give witness about the truth of God. Same thing happens here. Right. The message comes, Holy Spirit descends, and then Peter is going to start to preach. So it's very clear that Luke has paralleled uh, several of these things. But then the really comedic thing, and I, I, it just amazes me that I hardly see anybody mention this. Uh, there is, there is a, <laughs> it's a clear wordplay here in 2-3 where as he descends, he, he, you know, it's, and again, Luke says he descends, it looks something like fire. So it's not exactly fire. It looks like fire and it appears as tongues. Right. And then in verse 24. Now, this translation doesn't translate it this way. But if you grew up reading the King James, it would say this. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues. <laughs> right. And I, it, it really uh, I don't know where this first came from, but one of the way fire is often um, metaphorized is it's like a tongue. In fact, there's a there's a reference where um, Elijah is going to war against the prophets of Baal. You remember this? And, you know, and the Lord sends fire down to consume everything. And in the Hebrew, it says the fire came and it licked up the water out of the trenches. Right. We, we think of fire licking something. Like, where does that come from? I guess it kind of does look like a tongue or whatnot. But here there there's clearly almost a comedic wordplay going on here. That the Holy Spirit comes down, he, <laughs> he appears as a tongue to give them the gift of tongues, right? And, and Did James say, say James? Yeah, uh, tongue, unquenchable fire. fire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's just an interesting metaphor, you know. Runs all the way through Scripture and even into modern day, you know, so really interesting. So here, uh, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. Uh, he fills them. Now, I didn't get to the handout today. I'm surprised. I thought we'd get to that thing. Um, well, and that actually works out. Boy, this is up there. This is better than casting a lot because uh, uh, for next week, y'all read through this handout because now I've got more information on here than we can possibly go through. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I sat down and um, uh, decided to put some notes together about the filling and the baptism and all the ways that the Holy Spirit is referred to in Luke and Acts. And I thought, yeah, I'll pull that together about 30 minutes. You know, three and a half hours later, um, I've got all this information. So y'all read through that handout because um, I think this has every major reference to the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts on it in some way or another. So it, it shows you all the different ways that Luke talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And, I'll, and we'll start there with that next week uh, as we talk about this baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the things that happen there in that. So y'all go ahead and read through that. I've got some conclusions uh, on the second page of that, that that you can look at and start to think about and see if I know what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, we, we've got some more out there. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get you. Yeah, there's just a backside of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll pick up right there next week and we'll also get into Peter's sermon. So go ahead and read through the rest of Acts 2 and we will get right into that next week. Now, y'all, we're over time. Let me go ahead and pray for us and let everybody, let everybody get on out of here who needs to get out of here. I'll stick around and talk with anybody that has any questions or anything. But let me go ahead and close this out. Father, we, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you for the rich treasure that we have uh, in your word and, and even... More so on a certain level, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who, as Paul says, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And because we know him, 
uh, we have access to the most important things that we need to know as human beings trying to make our way through life on planet Earth. And so, Father, we thank you that you've given us these things, even as Paul says, uh, so that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. And Lord, that is what we desperately need in the midst of this perverse and dark generation in which we find ourselves, in which uh, we see the it just appears as if the dark days of the end are right on our doorstep. And so, Father, we thank you that you've given us the hope that we need to endure and to face the challenges that are coming down probably for us. And if not for us, definitely for our children. And so we pray all this and ask all this for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.